Hello, welcome to Cafe with Strangers. I'm your host, Moni, and today's episode is a mini-sode episode. If this is your first time listening to this, this podcast is about talking to other Latinas uh, in America, what it's like for them growing up, living up here, living, growing up, living in America. <laughs> uh, but I also have been doing some mini-sodes where I talk about a subject, history, something related to Latin American history. I was actually in the middle of doing some others when I kind of just dropped everything when I realized that this movie was going to be coming out. It's called Society of the Snow. It'll be in select theaters December 22nd, but will be available January 4th on Netflix. When I saw the trailer for this, just caught my attention to the name Society of the Snow. I'm like, oh, interesting. I remembered immediately the story behind this and I had first heard about this within the past few years, and it was a through a podcast. I don't remember exactly which one, but I know it was, it was through a podcast. But there were a couple things about it that I immediately remembered immediately, and I just—it's such a wild story that if we didn't have people who actually went through this and survived this, anyways, I wanted to share what happened when Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crashed. When I was listening to the podcast, I don't remember if they mentioned any of the people's names. And if they did, maybe like, I don't like saying this, but like the core people, I'll be mentioning those who passed by name because I think they deserve to be known as more than just someone who died in a tragic accident. I want to be able to tell the story of the people on the plane, the survivors, the ones who didn't make it, and also shared like the aftermath of what occurred. I hope you can find some hope like I did in the courage and bravery that these people showed in moments of darkness and inspiration in what it can mean and look like to heal. I'm recording this past midnight because the previous recording that I made this, wow, I sounded so monotone. I'm like, I'm really excited to share this story. So why do I sound like I'm freaking talking about a lecture in front of class over like my least favorite school subject? I don't know. Anyways, so I figured that with me being a little loopy, coming off my ADHD medication and realizing how monotone I sound, I was like, we'll see how this one goes. <clears throat> Anyways, back to Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. On October 12th in 1972, a crew of five and 40 passengers boarded a plane at Carrasco International Airport in Montevideo, Uruguay. The passengers mostly consisted of a rugby team and were joined by some family members and friends of theirs to help with like running the cost of the plane. The destination was Santiago, Chile for a game, but due to the weather, they had no choice but to stay the night in Mendoza, Argentina. And Mendoza is roughly like an hour flight to Santiago. Montevideo to Santiago is approximately 1,200 miles, 1,900 kilometers. And there are direct flights that nowadays can take you about two and a half hours, two hours and 40 minutes to get there. Put it a little bit into more perspective if you're familiar with like the West Coast. So Seattle to LAX, direct flights are about two and a half hours to two hours and 45 minutes. Similar distance apart from each other. So they had to spend the night in Argentina. And the following day, on October 13th, the plane took off from Mendoza in the early afternoon, about 2-ish p.m. or so. 
And even though Santiago was about an hour away, they did have to take a different course to safely cross over the Andes Mountains because the plane that they had on there, or the plane that they were, the plane that they were driving, the plane that they were flying had a max flight height of about 22,500 feet. Part of the mountains close to the Mendoza or close to Mendoza was close to that elevation. The plane's plan was to fly about 200 miles south to go through this part of the Andes where the highest elevation was about 14,000 feet. A much safer flight path for them. The plan was to fly over this path. I can't remember what it's called, but I think it started with the P. But they'd be flying over this pass to reach Curico. It's about a city that's about 110 miles south of Santiago. And then once they reach um, Curico, they would have been turning north to head to the original destination. So they're flying over the pass, they're flying west, and then boom, turn north towards Santiago. So the pilot and air controllers were in contact with each other. And at one point, the pilot said they had reached Curico and they were going to be turning north. Air controllers cleared them to prepare for the descent. However, they were very unaware of the mistake that had just occurred. The plane location was misjudged by the pilot. They were flying north, but flying north while still in the Andes. And shortly after being cleared for descent, the control tower was unable to reach the plane. Rescue efforts were in effect an hour after losing contact. They ended up figuring out they were looking in the wrong like wrong place since they didn't since they didn't have the plane's last known accurate location and they did direct their efforts towards the Andes. After about eight days, official rescue efforts were called off. The multiple rescue attempts ended up totaling about 140 hours and 30 minutes or so. Um, later on, survivors stated that they did recall seeing searching search planes flying over over them it was not an easy task later on there were unofficial rescue attempts or at least like one or at least by one person and it was um the father of carlos Paez, who ended up continuing the search for his son so shortly after being cleared for descent control the control tower was unable to reach the plane it was just past 3 30 p.m when the plane hit a mountain and they ended up losing the wings and then crashed into a valley in Argentina near the Chilean border. This plane crash occurred in October. Their survivors would not be rescued until December. Before the impact, there were two people who were sucked onto the plane. Daniel Shaw was a 24-year-old cattle rancher and he passed away instantly. Carlos Valeta was an 8-year-old prep student and he did survive the initial fall out of the plane, but eventually did pass after falling into a soft spot in the snow, likely asphyxiating. There were several others that um, died at the point of impact or just shortly after. Side note, trigger warning for this because it is, um, there is a lot of death that occurs. Um, might be a little intense. So if you're squeamish, be aware so several died at the point of impact or just shortly after. The 39-year-old captain, Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, 26-year-old steward Ovidio Joaquin Ramirez, 30-year-old navigator Lieutenant Ramon Martinez, 23-year-old law student Gaston Costemalle, 23-year-old agronomy student Guido Magri, 20-year-old veterinary student Alejo Huini. This last name I I'm I cannot pronounce. I am so sorry. 
H-O-U-N-I-E. Howney, Alejo Howney, the teen physician, Dr. Francisco Nicola and his wife, Esther, 20-year-old medical student, Fernando Vasquez, and then 50-year-old Eugenia Parado. That first night, several others passed away as well. 21-year-old cigarette factory worker, Francisco Pachito Abal. Graciela Mariani, she was about 42, 43 years old, and she was actually the only one who had no real relation with anyone on the flight. She happened to be on there because she was trying to make her way over to her daughter's wedding in Santiago. 22-year-old econ student, Felipe Maquirain. 24-year-old blank Kirk Julio Martinez Lamas. And then co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguarada. And he survived for several hours after the crash before ultimately passing away. He was 41 years old. 20-year-old Fernando Nando Parado was initially thought to have passed. He ended up spending the night in the snow. And when they were created like a makeshift burial, they realized he was alive. Nando ended up falling into a coma for about three days. One moment he's awake on the plane, and the next he's waking up in a freezing environment. He had a very significant head injury that he discovered upon waking up. He pressed like on this soft spot in his head and around the clumped dried blood in his hair. He realized he was actually pressing a piece of his skull into his brain. Nando was also one of three parados on that flight. And once he woke up, he was given the news that that his mother, Eugenia, had passed away and his younger sister, Susana Susie, was critically injured. On that first night, Bajito Abad passed away. He and Nando were best friends. While they were on the plane or at, at some point, Nando originally had the window seat, but Bajito had made him switch. I, here's a quote that I wanted to read from one of the sources that I got. And I do not recall who said this. I'm sorry. But first, we had to stay alive. If not for our team captain, Marcelo Perez, we wouldn't have lasted a night. Marcelo was a wing forward, very fast, very brave, and a leader we would trust with our lives. After the crash, as the stupefied survivors staggered about in disbelief, Marcelo had organized and has organized the uninjured into a search party to free the dozens of passengers still trapped in the, in the heaps of tangled seats in the plane. Roberto Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino, two players who were also in medical school, had done their best to tend to the injuries, some of which were grisly. A six-inch steel tube had impaled the stomach of a quiet, stoic player named Enrique Platero, and Gustavo yanked the tube from his friend's gut. Several inches of his intestine came out, but Enrique immediately got to work helping to free others. The main part of the plane where the passengers sit, seat, where the passengers sit, it's called the fuselage. I might be pronouncing that wrong. I'm sorry. Fuselage? Fuselage? It was intact, but it didn't provide for, like, much shelter. The plane crash site was at an elevation of about 11,500 feet in these snow-filled mountains. During the day, the sun provided some good warmth, but at night, the temperatures were dropped to as low as negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. They ended up burning what they could for fuel, including all of their paper money. Um, one source I found listed it that it was about 7,500, but it didn't list the currency, I can't really give a good estimation on the monetary value of this since there was a lot of fluctuation and changes with the Uruguayan currency throughout the years. But let's say it was 7,500 Uruguayan pesos. And today that would equal about a little, almost one, 191 bucks. And 191 bucks in 1972 would approximately be a little over 1,400 in today's money. But not important. Moving on. 
the food. So again, this was just like a kind of like a was meant to be a day trip. They end up making a stop in in Mendoza, but they didn't have any much food with them. The food was minimal and it only lasted about a week. Uh, as per the New York Post, it stated that they had eight chocolate bars, eight tin of mussels, three jars of jam, some dates, some almonds and dates, and several bottles of wine. Being surrounded by snow, they were able to have a supply of water by drinking the melted snow. They eventually made some sort of system where they were able to get get that melted snow without too much effort. They And they would need to stay as hydrated as possible because dehydration occurs like five times faster at the altitude that they were in versus being at sea level. With the little food that they had with them, the survivors rationed as best as they could and tried eating what they could, like the leather from the luggage. They ripped open the seats to see if the materials inside were edible, hoping for like some straw of some sort, but instead it was inedible foam material. None the ones ended up making a single chocolate-covered peanut last three days. The first, it was like eating the chocolate around the peanut, and then the next two days were eating like half that peanut. Since waking up from his coma, Nando Parado stayed by his sister's side, caring for her in any way he could. But on October 21st, Susie succumbed to her injuries. Susie was then buried next to her mother. There were a few sources that listed her as 19 and others at 20, so, so she was about 19, 20 years old. Roy Harley was the only one who had any sort of like knowledge on electronics. With what was available on the plane, he was able to make one of those radios work. And through that, they were able to hear over the radio that the search had been called off for them. There's a quote here from Piers Paul, P- P- Piers Paul Reed's book, Alive, the Story of the Andes Survivors, about when they overheard the news. The others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo, Coco, Nicolich came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. Nicolich climbed through the hole in the wall of the suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey boys, he shouted, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio, they've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that a good thing? Baez shouted angrily at Nicolish. Because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. In the middle of the night on October 29th, Roy woke up to a thundering sound. The sound of an avalanche. He was unable to cover three people quickly, and then they all worked to find the others, wiping the snow off their faces. But the avalanche still caught them off guard and ate lost their lives. 20-year-old medical student Diego Storm, 20-year-old veterinary student Gustavo Coco Nicolich, 30-year-old Carlos Roque, who was the plane's mechanic, 22-year-old farming student Enrique Platero, and then 34-year-old Liliana Mendon. There were three other, the other three that passed, I was not able to find an accurate age on them. And the closest I could get was something from um, the site called findagrave.com. Juan Carlos Menendez, approximately 22 years old, and he was a law student. Marcelo Perez, the team's captain, and he was about 25 years old and an architect student. And then there was also Daniel Maspons, and he was a 20-year-old liberal arts student. 
Nando had awoken the night of the avalanche to the feeling of like a heavy weight on of snow covering his chest. He had gotten trapped and the snow was covering his body and his mouth, but the others were able to bury him out after nearly 30 minutes. The avalanche buried part of the fuselage and the second avalanche that occurred that night shortly after kind of like just rolled over them. There were several hours that passed before Nando punched a hole in the roof of the plane to help bring in some fresh air, but they were still trapped inside there for four days. When the blizzard outside stopped, the remaining passengers spent several several hours digging their way out of the cockpit. After this avalanche, the dead outnumbered the living. Their rugby team captain, Marcelo, had been helping to lead, but after his death, others took on the role of leading the remaining survivors. One of them was 19-year-old medical student, Roberto Canesa, and it was Roberto who was the first to openly mention cannibalism. They were starving. There was no other source of food anywhere around for them in that snow environment. When people who are familiar with this tragedy or have ever heard of it usually remember that detail the most, some survivors hesitated at first, but eventually most made the difficult decision to eat the deceased. Being Catholic was one of the bigger reasons why a lot of them struggled to make that decision. They wondered like things like what would happen to their souls and you know, would God forgive them? Being the first to openly mention it, Roberto was also the first one to cut into one of the deceased and ended up taking the first bite. As the hours went on, more joined, and as the days went on, eating the disease became their source of sustenance. They also ended up making a pact with each other that if one of them were to pass, they gave the others permission to be used as food. Though some of the survivors had loved ones that passed, Nando's mom and sister and Javier's wife Liliana, they did decide that family would not be eaten. Um, so they ate what they could at first, eating the deceased caused them to have constipation and afterwards would have diarrhea. To help make it tolerable to consume, they sometimes dried the meat in the sun. After the avalanche, they found themselves consuming one body every three days, so it wasn't long before they were running out. In their hunger, they started to eat more of what they kind of initially avoided. At first, it was just the skin and the muscle and the fat. Eventually, they ended up including the heart's blood, liver, kidneys, intestines, hands, feet, and the brains. Some of what they ended up consuming was partially rotted flesh. They still made efforts to try to find help despite no one having any mountaineering experience being completely unprepared. Around November 15th, four sought off to find a way to get themselves help. They were unsuccessful, but they did end up finding the tail of the plane and they were able to bring back some medicine, some food, and some comic books. One source listed Nando and Antonio Tintin Vicintin as the ones who found the tail. The source, along with others, said that the plane's location where the survivors were it was about 5-10 to 10 miles away from a summer resort that was closed but inside had supplies like firewood, canned food, and, and maps. That same day that the plane's tail was found, 21-year-old econ student Arturo Negoria died in his sleep. He had suffered broken legs that ended up getting infected. Three days later, on November 18, 22-year-old farming student Rafael Echevarren passed away. He also suffered with infected leg injuries and then delirium during his final days. Before he passed, though, Rafael told the others, Please tell my father not to abandon my body in the Andes. The following month, on December 11th, Numa Tarkati died. 
he was a 24-year-old law student and he was actually the only one who had refused to eat from the bodies. At the time of his death, he ended up weighing about 55 pounds, 25 kgs, and Numa was also the 29th person from flight 571 to have died, leaving 16 remaining survivors. And they all knew they needed to try to find help again. And so the next day, on December 12th, Roberto, Nando, and Tintin set out to find help. While the three young men left, those back at the fuselage realized that they were going to be running out of food again if they continued to exclude the family members. Before Nando left, he did speak with the Stroud cousins, Adolfo and Eduardo, that they could use his mother and sister as food as a very last resort. They never ended up having to do that. By this point, they hadn't gone searching for the missing and presumed dead passengers, so Gustavo Zarbino and the Strauch cousins went out to search for them. They were able to find Carlos Valeta and Daniel Shaw, and they were brought down since they ended up being the ones closest to the fuselage. The other ones were higher up in the mountains where it was colder and the snow was deeper, so they weren't carried down. But instead, over the course of like two days, a small group climbed up to the mountain to the other passengers where they ended up like harvesting them. It was just so, so weird to say. But some of those horses said butcher. They went up to butcher the meat. I'm like, that's just, I get it. But like, anyways, yep, they went up there to find the other deceased and cut the meat from them that they could. So Daniel Shaw was actually a cousin to the Strouches, so he he was buried near the other deceased family members' bodies. So I had been working on this mini-suit over the course of a couple of weeks, and early on in researching, I wrote how they kept their feet warm by using like flesh and fat around, or flesh and fat from the deceased and sewing them together in a way that they would create socks. I only found this in one source, and it's from a book by Christine Quigley called Modern Mummies, The Preservation of the human body in the 20th century. What was found in multiple sources was that they did make sleeping bags and used insulating materials from the airplane because one of their biggest challenges for this like expedition these people were going to go on was trying to figure out a way to survive the below freezing temperatures. So three days later, after Roberto, Nando, and Tintin, they reached the summit of this mountain. It was then that they realized they were way further into the mountains than they originally thought. Going off what the pilot had thought said, they also thought they were a lot closer to Curico. With this new information, they decided that Tintin should return to the others and Roberto and Nando would push forward. They took the rest of Tintin's food rations and the trip back for him was like a mere fraction compared to the three days that it took to get up to that elevation. There's a conversation that Nando Roberto had when they were up there at that summit. And I'm just going to read kind of what I got off that from one of the sources here. In the morning, we sit on the summit. We may be walking to our deaths, Nando said, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Roberto nodded. You and I are friends, Nando, he said. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. Roberto and Nando pushed forward. They ended up coming across this river, and they followed it down. It was the afternoon of December 20th, 71 days after their plane crashed. After hiking over 37 miles, they saw another human being that wasn't on that plane for their first time across that river. Sergio Catalan Martinez. 
due to the width and sounds coming from their river, they could not understand each other very well. So Sergio kind of just was like, hey, mañana, tomorrow, yelled it over to the to the two young men and then left. The next day, December 21st, Sergio returned. He tossed them some bread and they communicated using like these notes tied to a rock. And Nando ended up writing, Vengo de un avión que cayó en las montañas. Soy uruguayo. Hace 10 días que estamos caminando. Tengo un amigo herido arriba. En el avión quedan 14 personas heridas. Tenemos que salir rápido de aquí y no sabemos cómo. No tenemos comida. Estamos débiles. ¿Cuándo nos van a buscar arriba? Por favor. No podemos ni caminar. ¿Dónde estamos? I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out of here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we can't even walk. Where are we? Message understood. Said he'll read the note, jumped onto his horse, and made the journey to go get them help. There were a couple of sources that, that said it was a very long journey. One of the sources for sure said it was like a 10-hour journey to go get help on horseback. The following day, on December 22nd, helicopters and a rescue crew had arrived. On a map, Nanda was able to point out where the rest of them were, but the rescue was realized. They're like, are you serious? Is, is that really where you guys were at? He's like, yeah. And the rescue was realized that they were going to need a guy to help get them to the crash site. Nando had looked over to Roberto and he was being attended by a nurse. Roberto had lost nearly half his body weight. Nando realized he was going to have to be that guide. Back in the air for the first time since the crash, Nando was able to guide the helicopter to the others. Once they spotted the wreckage, the helicopter circled, the men exited the fuselage. This entire time, they still had their radio with them. So they had heard that their friends had gotten rescued. That day, they flew out six of their survivors and the other eight stayed one more night, but they were accompanied by members of the rescue team. And on the next day, December 23rd, the last of their survivors were flown out and away from the Andes. At a hospital in Chile, the 16 survivors were treated for a variety of conditions. Altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, malnutrition. Britannica, along with several other sources, lists that the official investigation concluded that the crash was caused by controlled flight into terrain due to pilot error. The pilot, Captain Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, was an experienced Air Force pilot having 5,117 flight hours and and 29 flights across the Andes. While I understand the gravity of the pilot's mistake, and I'm not bringing this up to point any, like point any fingers or blame or compare anything like that, I have a curious mind and I, I find it intriguing and perplexing how the error occurred. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Um, my knowledge in, on piloting planes is very minimal, so I opened up another tab while looking into this, and I found an article published September of 2021 by the Air Education and Training Command about an Air Force fighter pilot in the U.S. with a who had hit like a historic milestone. He had reached 7,000 hours of flight time on a single aircraft type that he had done over 32 years. The pilot Ferradas had, I think I had read, it was like two decades under his, his belt in experience. 
there isn't that much readily available information that I could find on on that or like on the pilot. So I wasn't really able to go into much of a rabbit hole there. I just wanted to share this little bit of information that I did find. All those who perished on the mountains, their remains stayed there and were buried by the crash in a common site grave. I, I read somewhere, I can't remember which source exactly, but I read that no one in the family, none of no none of the family members or like, you know, relative loved ones were able to be part of that little expedition that occurred afterwards when um, officials went to go bury the, the remains there. I don't recall exactly why or for what reason, but um, it was like a crew and I think they said like there was a priest there as well. So one of the fathers of the deceased, Rafael Echevarren, the father had made his way up to the site to bring his son back to be buried home. Rafael was the one that before he passed had told the others, please tell my father not to abandon my body in the Andes. I wasn't able to find more information on this other than Wikipedia. So according to it, the father wasn't able to get like official permission to get his son's remains, so he just made his own trip to go get them. He ended up being arrested for grave robbing, but then a federal judge and then the local mayor intervened and got him released. Later on, he was able to get legal permission and was then able to fulfill his son's last wish. Also, the reason I say all I could find was on Wikipedia, I just think it's the schooling program in me that was like don't have wikipedia as your source and so i kind of just used to not using wikipedia as a reliable source anyways that's why it also takes me a million years to research these episodes because i cannot just go off of wikipedia if i'm going to be telling you guys some things i better be making sure that i'm tr actually getting appropriate correct information because the last thing i want to do is spread misinformation Yep, I can tell that I'm getting tired. I am so sorry. For for several months following the rescue, the survivors were surrounded by journalists regularly. They got photographed by paparazzi, got approached by strangers to shake their hands. They also received public backlash when they when the public learned about the cannibalism. There were Catholic church officials that stated that the passengers hadn't committed a single sin by cannibalizing the dead, but the media did sensationalize it. For the public, when they learned about the pact that the group had made with each other, they over time became more forgiving and understanding about the situation. Over the years, they've received letters and emails from fans around the world, from the ill and dying to the healthy ones, all in between, with the common comment that their worries feel like nothing compared to what the survivors from Flight 571 went through. Biblioteca Nuestros Hijos, the Our Sons Library, it was created by 13 mothers of some of the ones who had passed, and they opened up their doors nine months after the accident. It's a nonprofit that works to promote reading, instruction, and cultural development in children, adolescents, and adults in Uruguay. Quoting from their website, their purpose is to serve others to keep alive the memory of those who did not return from the accident that occurred on October 13, 1972, in the Andes Mountains, and honor their mothers, founders of the library. Pain can be a driving force to build positive realities. We all have the right to access quality education. Reading is a tool that promotes the personal and intellectual development of people. And instruction is a way to achieve better opportunities in the present and future. 
Fundacion Viven was founded in 2006 to preserve legacy of the flight, memories of the victims, and to support organ donation. There is a museum that opened in 2013 called Andes Museum 1972, and it was dedicated to the crash to awaken or keep alive the inspiring and unique story. A room there was named El Arriero in, in honor of Sergio, Don Sergio Catalan Martinez. So he wrote for several hours. Whether it was 10 hours or not, writing several hours to find someone who would help him, he actually ended up getting a pension for, for what he did. And there was this interview where Sergio said that I thought no one was going to remember me. Kind of mostly talking about like Nando Roberto that, you know, they forget about him the next day or something. I was not able to find too much information on this. But according to at least Wikipedia, Roberto Canessa and then the other survivors were able to help get Sergio his hip replacement surgery. On February 11th, 2020, at 91 years old, Sergio Catalan Martinez passed away. In one of the last interviews that he ever did, the interviewer asked, how will the world remember him? And he said, like a hero. When listening to the other podcast episode about this, I do not remember if they ever went into detail about afterwards. And I think that telling the story of what they went through, it's important to mention what happened afterwards. Not necessarily just like the library that was opened by the mothers, but like what the individual survivors as well, like how they use this to move forward, how they just tried to even move forward. Getting to find out what these people did after this tragedy, I can't, I can't not feel hope. I hope you guys feel that too. Roberto Canessa was a second year medical student when the plane crashed. He always wanted to be a doctor and studied cardiology like his father. But his desire and will to pursue that career only grew from what he went through in the Andes. It led him to work in, in pediatrics. He became a pediatric cardiologist, stating, and he stated that he preferred to work with the, quote, most challenging group, the most vulnerable, end quote. He was awarded the National Award of Medicine in Uruguay three times. And in 2015, he was named an honorary fellow of the American Society of Echocardiograph. This little side fact about Ganesa here. He, in 1994, he was a third-party candidate for the Uruguay presidency. So Roberto was dating someone named Lori, Lauri, Lori, or Lauri, before the crash. They went on to marry some years later, and he became a father and a grandfather. On his website, robertoganesa.com, there are some paragraphs from his wife and his children that are on there that I highly think are worth reading but i will read one little thing from his his site that comes from him and it says i feel like getting out of the andes meant kind of an extra responsibility since i didn't do it only for me but thanks to those 29 friends that died and that enabled us to stay alive so i am not only myself but also myself on behalf of others therefore my life can't be led in an ordinary way if i did so they would question me and tell me roberto 
What have we done with the life we contributed to keep? This is something that is complex, but it doesn't operate as a trauma that turns me off, but as a booster that makes me work, that makes me more hardworking and to make a greater effort to contribute together with many others to save my patients' lives. In 2020, the start of the pandemic, he helped create respirators so that no one would die from thirst of air. In March 2016, his autobiography was published that was also co-written with Pablo Bierci. It's called Tenía que sobrevivir. Como un accidente herrero en los Andes inspiró mi vocación para salvar vidas. I had to survive. How a plane crash in the Andes inspired my calling to save lives. Nanda Parado was initially thought to have died when he was in his coma. Neuroscientists later on told him that the colds and dehydration stopped his head injuries from swelling that would have killed him. Nando said that he's never gone to therapy or seen a psychiatrist, and he has also said that he's never had a nightmare about his time there in the Andes. One of the mounds they had summited previously had no name, and it's now named after his father, Mount Seller. His father actually visited the site 18 times in a row. On the first visit there, Seller brought the teddy bear that his daughter Susie slept with every night. Nando ended up asking him, why he goes back and his dad said people go to cemeteries to put flowers on the grave of their dear ones my cemetery is only very far away Seller Parado passed away at 92 in 2008 one of his final wishes was to have his ashes taken to the crash site his final resting spot is now in the shadow of Mount Seller next to his wife and daughter Parado became a very successful person. He's been a successful businessman, sportsman, TV producer, and a renowned speaker. He does have a tech talk video that I will post a link to if you are interested in watching that. Uh, But Nando has his own website called parado.com. He got married and had kids and Nando said that he actually wouldn't have visited the crash site if it wasn't for his dad. He himself has visited 12 times. And this is a trek that takes two and a half days on horseback. And then it's followed by a 43-mile hike on dirt roads. His last visit to the Andes was in 2006 when his wife and daughters joined him. The photograph there taken with his family is the only photo, the only memento that he has there of the Andes. Um, Roberto having his own website, parada.com. He has a letter on there that I do recommend reading because it's really beautiful. There's a section here that I want to read from his site, his website. Time is a very good healer. It has put a veil over my worst enemies and sorrows. I now remember the most awful parts of our ordeal, almost as if I had read them in a book. However, when I first returned, I realized that Andy's had affected me more than I thought. I saw there was no way to pretend it did not happen, and I tried to learn from the experience, changing my life dramatically. My family life was destroyed when my mother and sister died in the accident. When I returned home, I had experienced what would have happened if I actually, if I had actually died. Arriving home almost three months later after the crash, my clothes had been given away, my room given to my older sister who had moved in with her family, my posters and photographs had been removed, and my motorbike sold. There was no trace of me, except for some pictures in the living room in my father's study. A couple of days after my return, I went to the same pizza place that I used to frequent before the accident. All the 
All the young people were astonished to see me. He asked for my photograph, and the owner did not charge me. I was the same person, but something had changed in the way everyone saw me. Sometimes I ask myself why people need to experience extreme situations to understand the real values of life. These values are so clear and near to us, yet we rush by them looking for the important things. The warmth of my daughter's embrace at night when I put them to bed, or the quiet presence of my, of my wife, Veronique, near me, moments that will not be repeated. These are the important, enduring values. He has three books. Miracle in the Andes by him, Alive with Pierce Paul Reed, and then La Sociedad de la Nieve along with Pablo Bierci. Carlos Carlitos Paez Rodriguez, he also has his own website called Carlitos Paez. And when he he was actually 18 when this occurred and turned 19 while on the mountain. Um, he was one of the youngest one that was there. He ended up getting married and had grandkids. He became an agriculture technician. He founded his own agency called Rating Publicidad and was the director of Beats Uruguay Publicidad. He's also done public speaking. He has three books, After Day 10, My Second Mountain Range, and From the Mountain Range of the Soul. Jose Pedro Algorta, after the accident, he ended up moving to Buenos Aires went back to school to get a degree in economics, and he got an MBA from Stanford. He became CEO of the largest brewery in Argentina. He got married, had some kids, and he actually didn't speak on what happened for over 40 years, but then he ended up opening up about it, and he has a book called Into the Mountains. Roy Harley got married, had kids, grandkids. He is a motivational speaker and coach. In 2016, in the Rio Olympics, he became the only Uruguayan to bear an Olympic torch. Javier Metol, he became a successful businessman. He was diagnosed with cancer in 2015. In that same year, on June 4th, he passed away at 79. Almost all of the remaining survivors attended his funeral. Jose Coche. Luis Inciarte, he became one of the country's most productive dairy farmers and respected painters. He had a fiancé when the crash occurred. Later, they married and um, had children and grandchildren. He passed away July 27th, 2023, at 75 years old. In an interview in 2022 with Montevideo's El País, he said, And I appreciated life for the first time, not as a right but as something that had to be deserved and done to deserve it. That was the beginning of this story. Ramon Moncho Tabella. He was actually one of the few that wasn't a rugby player. He had gone there to support his friends. He became a successful businessman and has done some motivational speaking. Antonio Tintin Visitin. He would he ended up using rugby as, as a coping mechanism and lives as a motivational speaker. Gustavo Zarpino became the director and CEO of the Uruguayan Rugby Federation. For you rugby fans, Gustavo has a nephew named Jorge who, who plays rugby for Uruguay and played in the 2015 Rugby World Cup. In the website, thinkingheads.com, there's a section on Gustavo where he says that over the years, as his career became more successful, he realized the similarities between the corporate and personal development and his surviving experience focusing and motivation and attitude to find a solution to overcome and survive. 
He became a well-known motivational speaker in areas like adversity management, leadership, and motivation. Eduardo Strauch, he married, had like five kids, became an architect in Montevideo. A man by the name of Ricardo Pena found his passport in 2005 and it, the new interest to speak publicly about what had occurred. And Eduardo ended up giving lectures in Latin America and the U.S. Eduardo said that after the rescue, his mind was 60% in the Andes. Afterwards, it was like 20% there, but he was okay with that. To quote him, on so many afternoons, Strach said, this is exactly what he and the other survivors did. They sat watching El Sosniado at sunset. In the Andes, the survivors were free of society's selfishness and materialism. Money was something you used to start a fire. Pleasure came in, in simple interludes like this one. I actually lived in the Andes some incredible moments of happiness, he said. There were meditative states and a sense of freedom that I've never had since. He has one book called Out of the Silence After the Crash. His cousin, Adolfo Fito Strauch, he's talked about his experiences on TV and docs, but mostly keeps his life private. Alvaro Mangino has launched a wine line and it's called Valle de las Lágrimas. Alfredo Pancho Delgado, he used rugby as a coping mechanism. He also ended up having his birthday on the mountains there, but he keeps his life out of the spotlight. Daniel Fernandez also used rugby as a coping mechanism, as a coping mechanism and keeps his life pretty private. Roberto Bobby Francois lost about 90% vision in one of his eyes. He's spoken in and appeared on TV and documentaries about the experience, but he's pretty private on his personal life. Close to that burial site lives a plaque inscribed, El mundo a sus hermanos uruguayos, cerca o Dios de ti. The world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O God, to you. They've made it a regular occurrence that every year on December 22nd, they all gather together, Last year, when they commemorated the 50th anniversary of their rescue, a photograph was taken. In the Guardian's article posted earlier this month, Nando stated, We took a photograph of 147 persons who are alive because we came back. So this is a story of life, and we celebrate the memory of our friends who didn't come back or our family who didn't come back. Society of the Snow comes out December 22nd in select theaters and will be available on Netflix on January 4th, 2024. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope that I did the passengers and the crew, I hope I did them justice in telling their story. I know this was a little bit of a rough one. <laughs> um, if there's anything that I got extremely wrong, I will correct myself. I'm gonna definitely be checking out some of their books too and you know hearing it straight from from them from hearing from their words it is getting so much later and i can feel myself getting really weird and goofy anyways all right yeah my brain is done i'm done for the night for the morning it's morning i need to go to sleep thank you guys again so much for listening i appreciate you guys and Take care of yourself. Love yourself. Do you, boo. And until next time. I was just about to finish this up and upload it when I realized that this is probably the last episode 
that I will be uploading for the year. So y'all know how Spotify has its Spotify wrapped thing, wrapped, Spotify wrapped thing. And I didn't realize that, well, I guess I didn't think about podcasts have one. Did I get one? <laughs> um, and I was really pleasantly surprised that there were, um, I think it said that there was uh, like seven where Cafe with Strangers was their top podcast that they listened to. So regardless if you listen to a lot of podcasts or just one or two, that really means a lot to me. Especially because this year, I, I mean, I didn't post as much this year. It's been a really, really rough year. Um, but I know I'm not like the most consistent with these. And I am a little bit all over the place at times with, with this. And it's definitely a work in progress. But I wanted to just say thank you to anyone who ever listens to any of these episodes, shares it. Um rates it, anything like that. I, I do appreciate it. Um, makes me glad to know I am not just speaking into a microphone, into the void. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I, I just wanted to pop in and, and say thank you for supporting and also to say happy holidays and happy new year as well. Um, I'm not one to set new year's resolutions. I haven't for a good portion of my life now um and kind of the reason being is like I don't see the new year as a I don't see it as like a way that you have to set a, re a resolution or like you have to start making changes at that point or this is the time period that the only time that you can start but I see it more as of a, like, it's a reminder that it's never too late to, to start something, whatever that is. So I, I do hope that you guys have a great holiday and that you have, um, a great new year. And even if you don't, there's always July or July 2nd, there's always January 2nd or January 3rd or January 31st or March 31st. Or December 29th, you know, even though it's not December 29th of this year. Anyways, okay, I'm done. It is two in the morning. I'm going to go to sleep just a little bit after I upload this. Um, Yeah, all right. Toodaloo.